Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, cardio nerds. Kareen Hamo here. Cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death in women, causing one in three deaths each year. The Go Red for Women campaign was created by the AHA in an effort to empower women when it comes to their cardiovascular health. We cardio nerds are dedicated to raising awareness about women's cardiovascular disease, not only during the month of February, but all year round. But as a special tribute to National Wear Red Day, we want to share with you a discussion we had with a leader and trailblazer for women's cardiovascular disease, Dr. Nanette Wenger, on a journey through the past, present, and future of women's cardiovascular disease and women in cardiology. We hope you find it just as enlightening and inspiring as we did. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to check the episode description for a link to claim free CME credit. The speakers of this episode have no relevant disclosures, and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. We are honored beyond words to bring to you this very, very special episode with Dr. Nanette Wenger. Dr. Wenger is a true leader in the field of women's cardiovascular health and a strong proponent of women in medicine. Her passion, dedication, and advocacy has inspired countless trainees to carry this torch and continue to build on her truly impactful work. One such mentee is Dr. Martha Gulati, who taught us about women's CV health in episode number 18. She told us how hearing Dr. Wenger as a medical student was a major turning point in her own trajectory and was the catalyst for her own career in advancing women's cardiovascular health. We invited Dr. Gulati back to introduce Dr. Nanette Wenger. Hi there. I am Dr. Martha Galati, the biggest fangirl for Cardio Nerds. It is an honor to introduce Dr. Nanette Wanger, who will be featured on the upcoming talk here on the Cardio Nerd podcast. I'm also her biggest fan. Dr. Wanger is a professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at Emory University School of Medicine. She is a consultant to the Emory Heart and Vascular Center and founding consultant at the Emory Women's Heart Center. Dr. Wenger graduated from Hunter College and then went to Harvard for medical school as part of the sixth class that included women. In 1956, she was the first woman to be named chief resident in cardiology at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. After her training, she and her husband joined the faculty at Emory University. Dr. Wenger's contributions to women in heart disease prevention and management have been a lifetime's work for her. Heart disease was traditionally understood to be primarily affecting men. Nanette Kaswanger was among the first physicians to focus on coronary heart disease in women and evaluate the different risk factors and features of the conditions in women compared with men. She actually chaired the first U.S. National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute Conference on Cardiovascular Health and Disease in Women. Dr. Wanger also has been a leader in cardiac rehabilitation. She chaired the World Health Organization Expert Committee on Rehabilitation After Cardiovascular Disease and co-chaired the Guideline Panel on Cardiac Rehabilitation for the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research. 
In the late 1950s, most doctors prescribed three to six months of strict bed rest and delayed a cardiac patient's return to work for up to two years. But Dr. Wenger had noticed patients could recover more quickly by getting up and moving around, starting with sitting on the bed and then walking around the bed and eventually walking down the hallway and so on. At Grady Hospital, where she was chief of cardiology, she developed a 21-day cardiac rehabilitation program, which became a model for cardiac rehabilitation programs across the nation. Since then, she and other doctors have been able to decrease the hospital stay even further with proven improved outcomes in those who completed cardiac rehabilitation. Dr. Wenger has also had a long-standing interest in geriatric cardiology and is a past president of the Society of Geriatric Cardiology and was editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Geriatric Cardiology for more than 15 years. Dr. Wenger is a highly decorated cardiologist and is a rock star in our specialty. She has received so many awards for her work, and I can only highlight some of them, because otherwise my introduction of her will actually be longer than her interview. She received the Outstanding Professional Achievement Award from Hunter College and the Physician of the Year Award from the American Heart Association in 1998. Dr. Wenger received the Distinguished Achievement Award from the Scientific Councils of the American Heart Association and its Women in Cardiology Mentoring Award. She was chosen by Atlanta's Women in Law and Medicine for the Shining Star Award, recognizing her distinguished career in cardiology and women's health issues. In 2000, Dr. Wenger was presented with the James D. Bruce Memorial Award of the American College of Physicians for Distinguished Contributions in Preventive Cardiology. In 2002, she received the Distinguished Fellow Award of the Society of Geriatric Cardiology. In 2003, she was included in the National Library of Medicine Exhibition, Changing the Face of Medicine, A History of American Women Physicians. Dr. Wenger received the 2004 Gold Heart Award, which is the highest award from the American Heart Association. At Emory University's 2004 commencement, Dr. Wenger received the Emory Williams Distinguished Teaching Award of the University, as well as the Alumni Teaching Award at the School of Medicine. Dr. Wenger was selected to deliver the Distinguished 2004 Lanark Lecture for the American Heart Association. In 2006, she received the Hatter Award, an international recognition for the advancement of cardiovascular sciences. The Georgia chapter of the American College of Cardiology presented Dr. Wenger with its Lifetime Achievement Award in 2009. She was selected as the Georgia Woman of the Year in 2010, and in 2011, she was selected to deliver the James B. Herrick Lecture by the American Heart Association for her outstanding achievements in clinical cardiology. She was elected a member of the Emory's 175th History Makers during Emory's first 175 years. In 2012, Dr. Wenger received the Charles R. Hatcher Jr. Award for Excellence in Public Health from Emory University. And in 2013, she was honored by the establishment of the J. Willis Hurst, R. Bruce Longy, and Nanette K. Wenger Cardiovascular Society for Emory Cardiology Trainee Alumni. In 2013, she received the inaugural Distinguished Mentor Award of the American College of Cardiology and the Arnold Patz Lifetime Achievement Award at Emory University School of Medicine. In 2014, the American Society of Preventive Cardiology honored Dr. Wenger by naming an annual lecture focused on cardiovascular disease prevention in women after her. 
known as the Nanette K. Wanger Distinguished Lecture, focusing on cardiovascular disease prevention in women. In 2015, she was awarded the inaugural Bernadine Healy Leadership Award, which is an award for women in cardiovascular disease by the American College of Cardiology. She received the Spirit of the Heart Legacy Award in 2017 from the Association of Black Cardiologists, and she was an invited lecturer for the 70th anniversary of the NHLBI program in Bethesda, Maryland in 2018. In 2019, she received the Outstanding Alumni Award from the Emory Alumni Association. In 2020, the Association of University Cardiologists named its distinguished lecturer after Dr. Wanger. And later this year, at the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions, Dr. Wanger will receive the 2020 Eugene Brunwald Academic Mentorship Award for her mentorship of so many academic cardiologists and scientists. Dr. Wanger has participated as an author of several American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association clinical practice guidelines. She is past chair, board of directors for the Society of Women's Health Research. She has authored or co-authored over 1,600 scientific articles, review articles, and book chapters. She continues to speak all over the world and serves on numerous editorial boards. She is listed as one of the best doctors in America and has been on that list for a number of years. But she is actually the best doctor and the best cardiologist in pretty much everyone's books. Dr. Wanger has always been about equity, whether we're talking about sex, gender, race, or age. When she arrived at Grady Hospital, it was the 50s, and the hospital would refer to white nurses as Mr. or Mrs. and say I'm about with patients, but black nurses and black patients. If you're a black nurse, you'd be referred to simply as nurse, and if you were a black patient, you'd be referred to simply by the first name only. Her first act at Grady was to change this. Well, of course, she was immediately reported, and she got called right away to the director's office. He asked her, do you really know what you are doing? And she answered, yes. He asked her, are you going to keep doing this? And again, she answered without hesitation, yes. As she said, you come with a set of core values, and I could not accept people not being treated as equals. Well, that really sums up why Dr. Wanger has studied women and elderly patients. Why wouldn't we need to know about them? Why wouldn't they deserve research on them like we have on men or on younger people? Well, I have a personal adoration for Dr. Wanger. I met her when I was a medical student in Canada and was invited to a lecture she gave at the University of Toronto at our women-focused hospital called Women's College Hospital. This was a hospital that was opened by women and focused on women's health issues from its earliest days. She spoke about how little we knew about women and their hearts. I sat there in shock, and by the end of the lecture, I knew exactly what my career had to be. I was going to be a cardiologist, that I already knew, but my life's work would be focused on women's hearts to contribute to this field where we knew so little. I had no idea at that time that I would get to know Dr. Wanger or count her as a mentor, a collaborator, and also a dear friend. I, like many women, might say she's our academic cardiology mother to so many women who have entered this field because of her. So with this very long introduction, I hope you enjoy hearing from one of the best cardiologists in the world, Dr. Nanette Cass Wanger. And happy, happy, happy 90th birthday to this amazing, wonderful cardiologist, mentor, and woman.
In today's episode, we'll be discussing the past, present, and future of two very important topics, women's cardiovascular health and women in cardiology. Dr. Wenger, it gives us such a great honor to welcome you to the CardioNerd Show. Before we get started, we would love to hear about how you initially became interested in women's cardiovascular health. Well, first, I want to express my appreciation to Martha Galati, who I view as one of my academic daughters. And secondly, to say how much I enjoy meeting each of you vocally. It's only been an email interchange uh, previously. But I expect I was interested in cardiology because at the time I was in medical school was just the beginning of the translation of cardiovascular physiology into clinical care. It was just the beginning of the study. Remember, we had very little else in terms of diagnostic techniques. We had our history and physical examination, which were crucial. We had the electrocardiogram and the chest X-ray. And essentially, that was it. The years that I was in medical school were the years of the beginning of the Framingham Heart Study. So we began to learn something about cardiovascular epidemiology. And of course, it was just the beginning of cardiology at the National Institutes of Health. But the function of the heart has always fascinated me because essentially I view the heart as powering the body. Without the heart, the remainder of the organs couldn't function. And my husband, who was a gastroenterologist, would always tease me. Uh, and I said, you know, without the heart, the GI tract couldn't function. But I think the fact that the world of relationship of basic science to the clinical arena was beginning to intersect was what drew me to cardiology. And of course, remember that at medical school, I was exposed to some of the greats. At the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, Dr. Herman Bloomgart, and Dr. Louis Wolf at the Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. Paul Dudley White. So here were wonderful, wonderful people who just began to teach us of the importance of clinical cardiology and the care of the patient with cardiovascular disease. Wow, that's incredible, Dr. Wenger. Thank you so much for uh, that story. And for our audience, before we dive into the meat of this episode, I'd like to just say that Dan Ambinder, our co-host and partner in crime, apologizes for not being able to make it. He really wanted to be here with Dr. Wenger. He's actually, as a newly minted intervention fellow, got called away for an emergency. And so taking care of patients, I think, is as good an excuse as any for not being able to join us. And I'd also like to give a very special shout out and a huge thanks to Dr. Kimberly Manning, who's just an incredible clinician, educator, mentor, and program director of the Transitional Pathway at Emory Internal Medicine Residency Program for connecting us with Dr. Wenger. So we begin our discussion with women's cardiovascular health, the past. And I'd like to start off with a story of a family friend in India 
This is a story of a woman in her 60s who began having jaw pain. Her doctor referred her, of course, to a dentist. She had one tooth pulled, but the pain continued. She had another tooth pulled, and yet the pain continued. Then she unfortunately died a week later of a massive MI. It turns out that her pain was probably angina all along, rather than a toothache, which had not occurred to anybody. To contextualize this discussion, I want to make note of three items from Dr. Wenger's prior talks. The first is a public awareness article from the Oregon Health Association from 1964. It was titled Hearts and Husbands, and it included a series of pictures of what women can do to prevent heart disease in their husbands, but not for themselves. The second, just a number of years later, was the first presentation about a heart-healthy diet given by the American Heart Association, and this was titled The Way to a Man's Heart, a fat-controlled low-cholesterol meal plan to reduce risk of a heart attack. And the third was a comic from 1991 picturing a doctor talking to a female patient, and I quote, he's saying to her, We have studies for fruit flies, mice, hamsters, frogs, monkeys, and men with this condition, but medical research using women as subjects just never occurred to anybody. So with this in mind, Dr. Wenger, having trained during this time and as the foremost beacon for advancing our recognition and understanding of women's cardiovascular health, can you tell us more about the past when only men had heart disease? What did you learn when you were a Harvard medical student in the 1950s, and how did this evolve in your early career? Well, let me go back to that cartoon, which says using women as research subjects never occurred to anybody. Fortunately, subsequent to that, it did occur to many, many people. And most of us are very familiar with the graphs on cardiovascular mortality in the U.S. And really, until the year 2000, the decline in cardiovascular mortality in the U.S., was solely in populations of men, and women's cardiovascular mortality remained unchanged. And in the year 2000, which was at the time we began to see sex-specific issues in terms of prevention, diagnosis, management, etc., there was a sharp decline in women's cardiovascular mortality, much more abrupt than that for men. And actually, in 2014, for the first time, the annual cardiovascular mortality for women was lower than that for men. And as I've said on a number of podiums previously, we are delighted to be in second place and we hope to stay there. But <laughs> let, me, let me go back to the Harvard Medical School and the teaching hospitals. Remember that our major cause for hospitalization was myocardial infarction. And this was Q-wave myocardial infarction diagnosed only by the electrocardiogram. We had no enzymes. We had no imaging studies. There was nothing else there. And the concern was that this entailed a mortality of 40 to 60%. So this was really serious. And as we learned in the early years of Framingham, myocardial infarction occurred predominantly in men. And this was the focus on men and heart disease because men were dying. Now, you must remember, we had huge populations of men in hospital simply because the typical hospitalization was three to six months for an acute myocardial infarction. 
with probably the first two or three months at strict bed rest. But even in the time of Framingham, if you go back to the old data, the women had a predominance of angina. But angina wasn't fatal, and therefore it was essentially disregarded. It was tabulated. And as we've come to realize in subsequent years, women essentially have a warning system, which is why it is important to recognize and evaluate chest pain. And of course, cardiac pain was considered to be central substernal pain. And as you have in your case of the woman from India, the radiation of pain into the jaws, neck, arms, back, shoulders was not even discussed. It was oppressive substernal pain. That was the descriptor. But we actually did see women with heart disease, but it was predominantly rheumatic heart disease. And we saw women who had mitral valve stenosis as their predominant problem, often complicated by atrial fibrillation. Many of these women died in pregnancy. We had no way to recognize it at the time. We were excellent at the physical examination. Men had rheumatic heart disease, but the predominant population of women that we saw were women with mitral stenosis. And in terms of other features, remember, we had no good therapy for hypertension. And the definition of hypertension at the time was 120 systolic plus your age. These were the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt dying with severe hypertension untreated. We never managed hypertension as a problem. And heart failure was documented, but we had no therapies. That was a fatal diagnosis. So when we look at the predominance in men, it really was the men with myocardial infarction. And I'll say hypertension was 120 plus your age. Thank goodness for the sprint trial. And for our audience, Dr. Wenger wrote a beautiful state-of-the-art review in Jack 2018 titled Hypertension Across a Women's Life Cycle. It is absolutely incredible. I will put the link to that article in the episode description. I think it's so important to realize that women have heart disease. And we'll talk about that as some of the discussion goes on, because the emphasis really because of myocardial infarction and its enormous mortality was that this was a man's disease. Absolutely. And it's so interesting. I think we as trainees take for granted all of the different testing that's at our fingertips and, you know, are often probably testing too much and constantly innovating and looking for new things. But it's really amazing to think about what was able to be accomplished with just, you know, the basics of history and physical exam and an electrocardiogram. So I'd like to now move on to women's cardiovascular health, the present. July 23rd, 1993 marked a major turning point in the story of women's cardiovascular health. This was when uh, Drs. Nanette Wenger, Leon Speroff, and Barbara Packard published a revolutionary article in the New England Journal entitled Cardiovascular Health and Disease in Women. And this recognized that coronary heart disease was the most common cause of death among U.S. women, as you mentioned, and that women with coronary disease actually did worse than men with coronary disease. Now, all of a sudden, heart disease was no longer just a man's problem. Following impactful work 
from trailblazers like Dr. Wenger, advocacy from three major organizations which brought in recognition that heart disease also affected women. In 1999, Women's Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease, was founded by women with heart disease to support other women and for political advocacy. In 2004, the NHLBI's Heart Truth campaign titled Heart Disease Doesn't Care What You Wear. And in 2004, AHA's Go Red for Women program, which really catapulted the red dress as a symbol of heart disease in women. So Dr. Wenger, where are we now in the story of women's cardiovascular health and what is the present state of affairs? Well, you have to remember that the New England Journal of Medicine probably was the first major publication that coupled the terms heart disease and women. And there is a long story leading up to that publication because at that time I was a junior level faculty member. I was seeing women with heart disease and going to the literature saw nothing that could guide my care. And I discussed this with the major cardiovascular organizations, National Heart. It was not the Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. It was the National Heart Institute at the time. And We kept on discussing it again and again. And through the 1980s, we had first a workshop and then a conference. And, you know, usually between a workshop and a conference, there's a year or two. This was multiple years, but we finally had the conference. It was my privilege to co-chair that conference. And the New England Journal of Medicine paper was a result of that. But, you know, I want to use a quote from Victor Hugo, which I expect positions this. Now, Hugo, you must remember, was not talking about heart disease in women. He was talking about the French Revolution. And what he said is that there is nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. And I expect that that New England Journal was an idea whose time had come. And that helps us, I expect, to understand the journey and how many people became involved in this vision and began interest in what are the specifics of heart disease in women. And there there were really a number of steps on the journey. And let me just highlight a few of them that I think are landmark. First is the report from the Institute of Medicine, 2001, essentially does sex matter. And it defined that every cell has a sex and it highlighted the importance of sex and actually sex and gender differences. And that brought the discussion into the forefront simply because of the preeminence of the Institute of Medicine. And then we had a series of trials. And let me just cite a few of them as examples. First were the trials of menopausal hormone therapy. You know, probably one of the reasons that heart disease in women was neglected was what I have called bikini medicine. And that is the only research that was done on women was the areas of the body covered by the bikini bathing suit, the breasts and the reproductive system. And the reason that 
women were ignored in terms of the rest of their organ systems is that they were thought to be protected from everything premenopausally by their intrinsic hormones. And then menopausal hormone therapy was prescribed and thought to cure everything from wrinkles to dementia and in between. And the randomized trials, the Women's Health Initiative in Healthy Women, the huge trial, and the HERS, the Heart and Estrogen Progestin Replacement Study in Women with Heart Disease, essentially turned that concept upside down because they said that menopausal hormone therapy was not protective. And what it did was to refocus the entire attention of the community on other features that were very important for women. Uh, Women's Health Study out of Boston was a major contributor. And then there was some interesting features out of the registry. The Crusade Registry, which looked at women with non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, found that women had a worse prognosis than men. They were at higher risk. And despite the fact that they were higher risk, they were basically underdiagnosed and undertreated. But probably the linchpin in this is the WISE, the NIH trial, the Women's Ischemia Syndrome Evaluation, because the model for coronary disease was the male model of disease, and that was obstructive disease of the epicardial coronary arteries. And what WISE did was to enroll women who had chest pain syndromes and who had myocardial ischemia demonstrable on non-invasive testing. They were going to the hospital to have a coronary angiogram. And surprise, about half of them did not have substantial obstructive disease of their epicardial coronary arteries. At that point in time, everyone would shrug their shoulders and say, false positive non-invasive test. Well, that's a phrase that we must get out of our vocabulary. It was not a false positive non-invasive test. There was myocardial ischemia. It was simply that it was not associated with obstructive disease of the epicardial coronary arteries. And because these women were in a study, they were followed. And it was shown that myocardial ischemia was the villain because they had not only persistent symptoms, but they had heart events such as myocardial infarction and coronary death. And this is really the basis for what we look at now and realize that we women are pretty complex creatures. We have myocardial ischemia due to obstructive disease of the epicardial coronary arteries or due to non-obstructive disease or due to microvascular disease. And this really is where so much of the research is ongoing. But the question is, are we there yet? Of course, we're not there yet. But remember that within the last decade, there have been 10 scientific statements from the American Heart Association related to cardiovascular disease in women, uh, from stroke to peripheral artery disease to myocardial infarction to diabetes, a number of imaging studies, the relationship of heart disease and breast cancer, and most recently, the importance of our partnering with our OBGYN colleagues to recognize disease early in women. 
Then we had another very important paper that I think, again, is game-changing. And that was, again, from the Institute of Medicine in 2010, talking about the research on cardiovascular disease in women. And basically, uh, what they proposed and documented quite well is that even as recently as 2010, what we saw was that all of the diagnoses in women were predominantly based on criteria for men. They pointed out something that was changed in some recent statistics and some studies, and that is that even when women were included in clinical trials, and they were certainly grossly underrepresented, the results were not published separately so that there was a weaker database for women. And even going back to the basic science, they told us that often the basic researchers did not know the genealogy of their tissues and cells. They didn't know the cellular provenance, whether it was from a male or a female animal. So they might have been doing studies on women's diseases from cells and tissues of male animals. And it was a challenge to journal editors to report the results separately by sex and not to accept papers that didn't do that. And we'll talk about how that came into congressional action. But I think that there was a major serial stepwise change. And all of this has the potential to basically improve the cardiovascular health of women. Thank you, Dr. Wenger. Hearing you speak, it's amazing to think about all of the work that it's taken to bring us here. And in preparing for this discussion, I really enjoyed reading that 1993 landmark review that was just such a turning point and a pivot. And there was one sentence in particular that I just kept reading over and over, and I'd like to share it with everyone. And it says, in women as in men, chest pain compatible with angina pectoris warrants evaluation for coronary heart disease. You know, I read this once and I had to read it again because I thought surely I must have missed the point because, of course, if you have chest pain, you have to evaluate for coronary heart disease until I realized that at that time, just this very concept in and of itself was revolutionary. And so it's just incredible to think how far we've come. Well, this is probably why this journey has been so exciting and why so many people have essentially boarded the train and advance the cause of women and heart disease. So now I'd like to pivot to the future of women's cardiovascular health. Dr. Wenger, we've clearly come far from the days of the AHA's presentation on the way to a man's heart. And we owe much of that to the hard work and advocacy done by yourself, your colleagues, and organizations like Women's Heart. But it's just as clear that we have more work to do. What is your ideal future for how we approach women's cardiovascular health and how do we get there? Well, first, I think we have a very valuable partner, and that is the U.S. Congress. And in 2015, they passed the Research for All Act. And to show you that our Congress really can act in concert and do something useful, what they did was to 
not recommend or guide, which is the way things had been done, but to legislate that the National Institutes of Health had to include women and minorities in all of their research studies and to have a specific plan for so doing. And any of you who've been involved in grant submissions lately will realize that if you do not have a good plan for gender recruitment and recruitment of underrepresented minorities, that grant will not even reach the first stage of review. But they also made the demand per the IOM report for the basic scientists, that all of the basic scientists had to know their cell, tissue, animal, sex, and that that had to be presented in the report. And journal editors are now demanding that. So that has been an enormous help. But what I would like to emphasize is that women's heart health is not solely a medical issue. And as we go forward with research, I expect that there are a number of features that I'd like to see us address. That would be beliefs and behaviors, the influence of community, whether it be the local, the national, or the international community, economic effects, environmental, ethical, legislative, political, public policy, societal, sociocultural. And we've come to realize that heart disease does not exist in a vacuum. And these are the variables that we will have to include as we go forward in research. But, you know, in academia, we have the three pillars of patient care, teaching, and research. I want to add something that is sort of a subset for all of those, and that is advocacy. And what we have learned is how important that is. And when I talk to healthcare professionals and indeed to groups of women with heart disease, what I've said is that there are four things that we have to do. First, investigate. That is to get the scientific, the research basis. Next, to educate. To educate healthcare professionals and women. And then to advocate so that what we know is put into practice and as needed to legislate. And this 2015 is really a very good emphasis. And these are the four steps, investigate, educate, advocate, and legislate. Thank you, Dr. Wenger. The story of women's cardiovascular health has gone through such an, really a birth and then an evolution through leaders like yourself. And clearly we have a lot of work to do. It's incredible to hear the story from you yourself. I know for a fact that your work, your mentees, your legacy will continue to help guide us as we move forward in using each of these domains, investigate, educate, advocate, legislate, to keep moving the field forward. At this point, I'd like to switch gears and move on to the next section of this episode, women in cardiology. Let's start with women in cardiology, the past. So women in medicine in general is an all too recent development. And just to go through a brief history 2,000 years ago, women were allowed to be midwives, but not physicians. In the 16th century, Henry VII made a charter for the company of barber surgeons, essentially giving birth to a new profession, but women were excluded. 
In the 19th century, James Miranda Stuart Berry had to dress as a man just to practice medicine as a military surgeon. It wasn't until he died that they realized that James was a woman all along. She performed the first recorded cesarean in Africa in which both the mother and the child survived. Helen Tausig is one of the first famous women cardiologists, having developed the Blalock-Tausig shunt. She became the first woman president of the AHA in 1965. But it wasn't until 1993 that the AHA established the Women in Cardiology Committee. So Dr. Wenger, what is your perspective of, and I'd like to say, of course, in this brief review of history, we're leaving out the countless women that have made such an incredible and tangible impact on the way we practice medicine in general. Dr. Wenger, what is your perspective of women in cardiology, the past? Well, as you know, women were very much underrepresented. I learned this as a medical student. Remember, Harvard was very late in admitting women compared with many of the other medical centers. Mine was the fifth class of women at the Harvard Medical School. And in their ultimate wisdom, the Board of Overseers decided that they needed a 10-year experience with women before they were enrolled in the university charter. So only the year that my class graduated were women officially in the Harvard system. We were essentially on probation. And because of that, we could not even get university housing. The men were housed at Vanderbilt Hall under house rules, and the women lived in apartments in town. And that essentially was almost symptomatic of much of what there was. Nonetheless, I must tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed medical school. I thoroughly enjoyed my classmates. The men were very supportive of the quota of women, which was 10 women per class that were admitted. There was a strict quota system there. And things have gotten better serially. I expect that we've seen major strides in the past decades. We're now seeing women emerging as leaders, leaders of the professional societies, leaders within their departments, divisions, and schools. So there is an emergence. But I think, and this applies to the men as well as to the women, but I think specifically to the women. And what I would say is that as a woman in cardiology, you really have a multifaceted group of spheres. And they're spheres in which you must operate. There obviously are the academic and the practice spheres with your colleagues. But remember, there is family, there is home, there may be children, there's a spouse and significant others. And then there's the outside cardiology community and the voluntary groups, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, European Society. We all operate in another sphere. And that's our faith-based community. And then we live in a general community where we are expected to be of service, whether it be music, arts, political, philanthropic. And then for those of an academia, we live within the university community, not just within the health sciences center, but we interact with the faculty and the students. And what we have to do is to examine what it is that gives each of us pleasure and satisfaction, 
what allows us to explore our scientific and clinical interests, and most important, what allows us to exercise our leadership skills. And this is what I see as where the area is going. The spheres are very important. Cardiology is a very important part of our life, but we have to encase it within all of the spheres in which we operate. That's really fascinating, Dr. Ringer. I never really thought of us each sort of operating in all of these separate spheres, but you're absolutely right. And it's it's all about really trying to think about how we can each individually contribute based on our skill set. So you touched on this a little bit, but I want to talk a, a little bit more about the present with regards to women in cardiology. And while in the last 50 years, as you mentioned, we've uh, had increased recognition of women's contributions to cardiology, there is still a long way to go. Cardiology as a field has overall done poorly to attract women trainees, with women comprising the majority of medical students, but less than 15% of practicing cardiologists and less than 5% of interventional cardiologists. This gender gap within cardiology has only modestly improved over the past two decades. Dr. Pamela Douglas published a survey-based study of internal medicine trainees in JAMA Cardiology in 2018 and noted that women were more likely to never consider going into cardiology. The factors influencing this gap included perceptions about stable hours, family friendliness, female friendliness, availability of positive role models, in addition to some other factors. Even after joining cardiology, women continue to deal with issues related to gaps in pay and promotion, and women are overall poorly represented among leadership positions, even though, as you mentioned, this has improved compared to the past. So what is your perspective on where we stand today with regards to women in cardiology? Possibly some of it is the way medical students and really internal medicine residents are exposed to cardiology, and typically they see it within the acute setting of a coronary care unit. And that is really not the practice of cardiology. That's crisis intervention. And if women had the opportunity to see more in ambulatory care, in prevention, possibly this would attract many more women to cardiology because it would give them a much broader appreciation of the spheres in which they operate. Now, most certainly women who go into cardiology are attracted to the high demand, high risk areas. And the heart failure is one of them where we're seeing large numbers of women. I'm not sure why, but perhaps what we're seeing is that for the interventional and the EP, that many of these women are the women who are attracted into the surgical specialties. And the surgeons have very actively recruited women. And probably we have to learn from the surgeons what it is that they're doing because they're recruiting more and more women into their ranks. You know, this past weekend, I was on a fascinating virtual all-day conference Saturday with the Brazilian Society of Cardiology and the Brazil chapter of the American College of Cardiology. It was a full day of heart disease in women. And the speakers and the panelists, again, articulated exactly what you have done, 
about women less represented even in Brazil in the interventional, in the EP, and trying to say what is it that they can do, looking at gender gaps and so forth. But the important thing is that this was a virtual conference and they had over 2,300 people online for a full-day conference on a Saturday. So it shows that there is an interest. And what we have to do is to make cardiology much more welcoming. But possibly for the women, we have to say, what is it that we want? We want to get some kind of ability to act on our own passions and ideas. That's the way to maintain vitality. The women should realize how good they are. I think women do not value themselves as much as they should. And with confidence and with fulfillment, I think leadership will come. You know, we have seen such change in the last few months in terms of the COVID epidemic. And perhaps we can learn from this as well. You know, in academia, when we see change, it typically is slow and incremental, often much too slow for many, many of us who are impatient. But it's not transformative. Transformation is not characteristic of academia. But COVID has changed this. And we see acute transformative changes in patient care with telehealth, in teaching with remote teaching and learning, in research where everything has gone from snail's pace to warp speed. And probably we have to learn that we should not be looking at this as an incremental process, but rather a transformative process. It's incredible, Dr. Wenger, and so truly inspiring. And honestly, I'm thinking that I just can't wait to share this episode with my wife, who is a NICU fellow and mother of my three-year-old son and carrying our identical twins at the moment while working in the ICU. And I think to myself that her fortitude that she carries with her in every sphere of what she does is really something that makes me better. And I'm sure that she's going to appreciate this. Well, again, what I say to the women in cardiology is to value yourself and to believe in yourself. Remember that most of us, because of our background, because of our education and training, are privileged people, and we have to recognize that. But with that privilege becomes a responsibility, and the responsibility is to serve. And that involves all of the spheres that I've outlined for you but particularly the luxury that we have to take care of our patients. Speaking of which, let's move on to women in cardiology, the future. Dr. Wenger, with advocates like yourself and many others, active organizations like the ACC Task Force on Diversity and Inclusion and the ACC Women in Cardiology Council, as well as an increasingly strong network of support and mentorship from both advocacy groups like Women as One and social media, hashtag Women in Cardiology, the outlook of cardiology seems so bright with regards to diversity and inclusion. And I have to say that as a platform, the cardioners have been absolutely committed to and being deliberate about being diverse within our own show, because we know that that makes our content better and more relevant for everyone. Dr. Wenger, what are your hopes for the future? 
how do we get to these virtues of diversity, equality, and inclusivity within our beloved profession? You know, I outlined for you the spheres in which we operate. And within our profession, it is not any different than it is in the general community. And what we have learned is to value individuals, to value cultural diversity, to value patient preferences. These were terms that we never heard about before. And that really translates into how we relate one to the other, how we relate to our colleagues, how we relate to our trainees, how we relate to our superiors, and how we relate to the community at large. We cannot separate cardiology from what goes on in the world and what from what goes on in the community. And I think we've seen in the world the three epidemics that we have. We've seen the COVID epidemic, we've seen the economic epidemic, and we've seen the social justice epidemic. And what they have taught us is how interchanged they are and how interconnected they are and how important it is that we see ourselves as citizens of a community, as cardiologists within a caring community. This is where it has to be. Dr. Wenker, as we end our discussion, I wanted to get your advice to us as trainees and particularly even female trainees as we embark on a career in cardiology to continue to move the needle forward? How do we increase female representation both in research and in clinical practice? Well, I think sessions such as this, where what I am hearing from and seeing are emerging leaders and just the diversity within this group is so important that what you are showing to your audience is a diversity of interests, a diversity of gender, a diversity of background. And that is what will excite people to seek what they want, to expand their horizons, and to do what gives them a sense of pleasure and satisfaction with the way they operate. Dr. Wenger, as we close our discussion, we'd like to ask you a question that we have a tradition for asking on our show. For example, I'll say that what's making my heart flutter is the privilege of learning from you today. So I ask you, Dr. Wenger, what makes your heart flutter about women's cardiovascular health? Well, I expect it is sessions such as this, because what I am seeing are the emerging leaders. You are the people who will lead cardiology, and I love the term cardio nerds. I think it is very creative, <laughs> and it shows imagination. It shows a lust for life, but it shows that you're also very serious people. You're addressing serious issues, and to see emerging leaders is what makes my heart flutter. Amazing. Dr. Wenger, I want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time to speak with us today. You are a true inspiration to cardiologists and specifically women cardiologists around the world. 
And I can say that I personally plan to take your words of advice about believing in yourself and exuding confidence to heart as I embark on my own career. We can absolutely not wait to share your insights and inspirational words with our Cardio Nerd audience. Well, it was a delight visiting with you this evening. And thank you so much for asking me. Friends, be sure to stay tuned for a comprehensive multi-part series on cardio obstetrics brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart with the goal of educating and raising awareness about this important area. As part of the series, we will get to learn from 14 incredible content experts and 14 fellows in training, all led by our series co-chairs, Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC and Dr. Sonia Shaw from UT Southwestern. See you soon.